And so we're going to do it again second service. But um, I don't know how many of you are active on the social media and the Twittergram and all that stuff. But if you didn't know, this past week, Pastor Esty got engaged to his fiance, Priscilla. So just want to congratulate him. Oh, there they are. I also saw Marilyn Elder Beyer, who are visiting us from the great up north, Canada. Welcome back. Canadians don't really like when I call Canada, Canada, but ever since I was nine years old, I couldn't understand how Canadians weren't what we are. They told me they were Canadians, so I figured they're from the land of Canada. You laugh, you're Americans, that's why you laugh. None of the Canadians are laughing. They're like, this is not funny. This joke is old. All right, welcome. Um, it's good to be with you. I guess I'm still in a happy mood. This past week, uh, Shell and I were in New Orleans celebrating our 10-year anniversary, um, which was amazing. Um, I bring that up because, like true parents, our anniversary was actually in June, but we went in July because <laughs> that's when we could get it to work. Um, this week, we're going to be continuing our series uh, looking at these early women of faith from Genesis and Exodus. Uh, we will be doing Sarah this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis 21. Uh, one of the things I really enjoyed in studying the lives of these women is how this common thread of faith um, has been all throughout their lives. But also, I think it's this reminder of us. You know, what is faith? Faith is trusting God. What is trusting God? Or how do we trust God? With our whole heart. Um, all of our bodies wants to lean onto our own understanding or what we say is right. Um, but faith and trusting God is submitting to Him and then depending on Him to make your path straight. What I love most about these women and what I've learned the most from them is that when we think about faith, you know, we do such a terrible job in being individualized and Western and make our faith only about us. But when we think about what builds our faith, we must remember that God designs us with him in mind and community in mind. So we're blessed this morning that our faith is built by his Holy Spirit that now lives inside of all of us who believe. We're blessed this morning that our faith is built by Jesus Christ himself, who serves in front of us, who's our example, and who is the model that we follow. We're blessed, even though we're in this individualized culture, to be reminded that we're members of one another. We're blessed with the body of Christ around us who not only lift us up, but teach and instruct us in the way of the Lord. And, and lastly, we're, we're blessed with scripture that lies in front of us that we learn about these stories of faith. But as I thought about their stories of faith, wanted to remind us as we go through these stories that faith is both a process and it's also a product. By product, I mean that faith can start off something as small as a mustard seed, but it can grow into a tree, and that tree can grow strong enough to have branches that give shade, to have branches that the birds can come and perch on. And it's a reminder to us that you might have a little faith in this, but as God grows that faith, perhaps your faith will be shade for someone in the future. Perhaps your faith will be home for someone to come to rest from the elements of the sun. But faith is also a process, and as a process, it's a journey. And on this journey, there's hills and valleys. And I, I think Sarah's life sums up the hills and valleys that, that we go through in our faith. But also, after the hills and valleys, there's desert, but then there's also rest from the wilderness. So may we be reminded as we look through these women that our faith is both a product and a process. It's both a journey, but we don't have to always be in the wilderness, for our God always provides us rest. Amen? If you have your Bibles, again, we'll be in Genesis 21. I'll be reading the very first seven verses, and we'll also have them up front here. Genesis 21, we read, 
Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Let's pray together. Father our God, we thank you so much that you're the God who completes and fulfills all his promises. We thank you so much that God, there is nothing impossible for you. We thank you so much that for all of us, our faith may be as small as a mustard seed, but you, through the power of your spirit within, through the power of your body around us, through the power of your scripture before us, through the power of Jesus, your son, can grow that faith into a mighty tree, a tree that provides home and rest from the elements, from the world, for not only us, but for others. So we thank you, God, that you are indeed good, that you are indeed faithful, that you're a God who does the impossible. In your holy and precious name we pray, amen? So one of the things I've realized uh, about Sarah is that, you know, when, when, whenever I hear the story of Abraham and Sarah, we do a really good job of separating the two of them. You know, we always talk about the great faith of Abraham. In fact, you know, the three major monotheistic religions, you know, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, they all consider Abraham father. And we talk about the great faith of Abraham as if he was doing this by himself, as if he was existing in this relationship with God only by himself. And I think that's our individualization that forgets the world around him. But you know how I know Sarah matters? And this is funny because Abraham is this great father of all the world's major monotheistic religions. And what does Abraham get? Father Abraham has many sons, right? That's what he gets. But what does Sarah get? You know, I, I, I thought about this for a while because I've been like, huh, that is interesting. I'm 36 years old, and I kid you not, I think I know at least 36 Sarahs. I know Sarahs who were born in Africa. I know Sarahs who were born in America. I know Sarahs who were African-American. I know Sarahs who were Asian, although I think she adopted the name because she liked it. I know Sarahs who were from the great North, Canada. I know Sarahs who were from Mexico. I know Sarahs who are Latino. So I thought about this, and I was just like, if Abraham is this great person of faith, how come we seem to like Sarah? And I, I researched it. Apparently, between 1970 and 2002, Sarah was a top 10 name in the United States. And I thought about it, and I was like, well, that makes sense. That's the generation I was born in. That's why I know all these names, Sarahs. But I thought about it some more, and I started realizing Sarah, this mother of nations, this one who God said kings of peoples would come from, it's more than her name meaning princess. Maybe, just maybe, we like Sarah because we can relate to Sarah. Because we put Abraham in this box and we caricature his faith so big and he's so mighty and trusting God, but Sarah we get. Sarah messes up. Sarah's not perfect. Sarah's led by fear. Sarah we relate to. So I thought about how we character Abraham's great faith, but we see ourselves in Sarah. And maybe that's why we name our daughters Sarah. And I'm not talking about you individually. I'm talking about us collectively as a society. I got one family who got a Sarah, and they're like, we didn't name her that reason. 
but I'm talking about us collectively, right? There's a reason in my life I've known all these Sarahs. Why do we keep coming back to Sarah? I think it's because there's something in her that we can relate to. Which is interesting because this entire sermon is by waiting and waiting on the Lord. Waiting is not just a foreign concept to us. It's an impossible concept to us. See, we live in an instant gratification society. How many times have you gone to get fast food and complained because they were too slow? I'm, 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 not, I'm the chief among you on this one. I got so tired of waiting my 30 seconds at Chick-fil-A, I downloaded the app. You know, because I was just like, we could do this more efficiently. I'm from central Pennsylvania now. I'm just adapting my culture. So I downloaded the app, and now I can order my food. They know when I'm there, which is a little freaky. They know when I'm there because it tells them and alerts them. I hit the button. I pull into my driving spot. They bring my food to me. Efficiency. Right? Or, or, or I'm not going to put this on you, but growing up, we, we would order pizza, and the pizza would come to the house, and you're doing nothing but watching TV and sitting on the couch, and they told you 10 to 15 minutes. And what happens at like 1501, you're like, it's been 15 minutes and 10 seconds. I want free something because they're late to my pizza that I ordered while I sat on the couch, and they made it and packed it and drove it to give to me. We live in this instant gratification culture and society. We also live in a culture that's based on the here and now. How many of us think 10 generations from now? How many of us think 10 minutes from now? We live in the here and now, and it's not just something that's out there, it's something we've breathed and something that we now believe in and live by to only look at today and not think about 10 tomorrows from now. Here's another one. Compiling with all this instant gratification here and now culture, we have access to more than ever before. And I'm not talking about money and resources because people argue that and it's like, how do you know how rich they were back then? I'm just talking about, for example, information. There was a time where there was a great fire burning in the library in Alexandria. And to this day, some of us, like 10 of us left on the planet, still bemoan that day because we're just like, what was lost? What's all that knowledge that was lost? Which is why if God ever chooses to bless me with billions, he never will. Don't worry. I'm giving it all to like Wikipedia and maybe MCC, right? But it's this idea of knowledge being accessible to people that has always appealed to me ever since I heard that story. And maybe if Alexandria didn't burn down, we would know that all of Western civilization is from Africa. But that's a side note. It's true. You can research it. But the building burned down. It's like it's landing somewhere. <laughs> People are like, wait a second, huh? But no, there's this idea that you can get on your phone right now as I speak, and you can find out anything about anyone. And we don't think about the privilege of access to information that we have. So you have this instant gratification culture, this here and now culture, this access to everything culture, but yet from Genesis to Revelation, one of the most consistent messages that God gives us is what? Wait on the Lord. It's the message that we hear from the prophets, from Isaiah to Huldah, wait on the Lord. It's the message we hear from the psalmist, from Miriam to David, wait on the Lord. It's the message we hear from the disciples, from Peter and John to the Marys who discovered the empty tomb, wait on the Lord. And from Jesus himself, I go to prepare a place for you. 
that where I am, there you will be also. Wait on me. This is what we run into because we want everything here and now. Because we get everything here and now. We have access to everything we could dream of. But God is saying, wait on me. And what makes this hard is that when we think about waiting, we think about patience. But I want to unburden a few of you this morning. God knows you're not patient. God might not even expect you to be patient. God may not even like you not being patient, but he knows that's how you are. There's a lot of times we think about waiting on the Lord. We think it's about patience, and then we beat ourselves up because we're not patient enough. It's okay. Take the backpack off. Sit down a while. God knows you're not patient. Waiting on the Lord isn't about your patience because your patience will come and go and it'll fail. Waiting on the Lord is about trusting the Lord. And it's not a partial trust. It's a complete trust. Now, some of us in this room, we can trust God with the big things. For example, I trust God with my future completely. You know, I don't know where I'll be 25 years from now, but wherever I am, God will be there, and I take peace and comfort in that. I don't worry about the future at all. But when I get in the car on my way home and someone cuts me off, I'm like, God, are we sure he should be behind the wheel? He could hurt somebody. A lot of people you know, worry about finances. And it's because it's, it's this world is hard. It's because we don't know where we'll land. And there's some of us who worry about finances. And there's some of us who worry about our children. You know, for example, I don't worry about finances. But when I look at the world out there, I look at my children, I was like, God, are you sure you're going to be able to protect them? Because it's crazy out there. It's wild out there. It's terrifying out there. But what does it mean to wait on the Lord? It's not about my patience, and it's not about your patience. It's about God consistently saying, do you trust me? Do you trust me now? Do you trust me in this? And that's the crux of waiting on the Lord, is God consistently asking you, do you trust me? Do you trust me now? Do you trust me even in this? Because the thing about waiting is it humbles us. It forces us and it reminds us that there are things not in our control. And whether or not we like it or like to admit it, we are people who like control of our situation, of our thoughts, of our future, of our finances, of our relationships. We like control. But waiting on the Lord means that you have to release and trust. Trust God. And it humbles us because when we realize that it's out of our control and only God can control, it could be scary. But it comes a point when you walk through the valley enough with God that that fear turns to joy and you can relax a little bit and say, thank you, God, that it's in your hands. Waiting on the Lord then grows your faith. It grows your reliance on God. And this little mustard seed that you had about your future can grow into a tree. And this little mustard seed you had about your children can grow into a tree that your kids can now rest on when they come back and get shade from that terrifying world out there. Wait on the Lord. It's about trusting him. Do you trust me now? Do you trust me even more? Do you trust me in this? Waiting on the Lord is about trust. 
thing about Sarah that I've grown to love is that her struggles help her to really understand who God is. Now, remember, we did this a couple weeks ago with Hagar. Sarah is also born within this culture where progeny and line matters the most. We might think about tomorrow. We might think about our children. But how everyone thought about back then was 10 generations from now. What will my line be like? What will this world be like for my descendants? This is something we're just now learning here that like it's a good idea to think about the world, not just when you have your four score and seven years or whatever Abraham Lincoln said, but what about 10 generations from now? What are you leaving behind that will last 10 generations from now? This is the mindset of everyone in Sarah's world, and it helps you understand why they were desperate to get an heir. It wasn't just because they wanted a son. It's because they wanted the line to continue. So Sarah comes from this culture where having an heir, having that next generation to take forward your family name was the most important thing. And that's what led all of their decisions. But we also have to personalize this for a little bit. When God makes the promise to Abram, he's 75 years old. Sarah's about 65 years old. So you figure they probably didn't just get married at 75. Maybe they did. But if you think about just, the, the, just a little bit, you realize that, wait, if he's 75 and she's 65, it's possible within this culture that has having an heir the most important thing, in this culture that looks as barrenness as your sin, as God's judgment, as you not being enough, that she's possibly been married for a year, five years, 10, a decade, a couple of decades, this is the world Sarah's in. Before the promise ever comes, she's been a barren woman facing neighbors, facing people in her culture and community who are telling her she's not enough, who are telling her she's the blame for her family not continuing. So you can understand a little bit her desperation. But then God shows up. What's amazing about the God that shows up is they don't even know him yet. And this is where I think their faith is remarkable. God tells me to do stuff. I say, are you sure? You sure about this? I'm not sure. Are you sure? But God says, Abraham and Sarah, go. Where to the place I will show you? And they said, that sounds wonderful. Let's pack up everything and go. What faith? But when God shows up, he gives this promise to Abram and Sarai, and he gives it to them when he's, Abram's 75, and Isaac doesn't show up till Abram is now Abraham, and he's 100 years old. One of the great tragedies we do reading their story is we might start off in Genesis 12, and we might read it through to Genesis 21, and maybe that takes you a half hour, 15 minutes. But we think about it as if like it happened overnight, as if like God made the promise on Monday, and Wednesday Sarah was like, you know what, let's try Hagar. And on Thursday she was like, you know what, this ain't working out for me. It was 25 years from Genesis 12 promise to the sun comes in 21, it was 25 years. You know how long 25 years is? Two and a half decades. 25 years ago, the Lion King, the first one, came out. 25 years ago, we were wondering if the Lion King or, or Forrest Gump would be the biggest movie of the year. It was the Lion King. 
25 years ago, some of you, not all of you, some of you were singing, you know, I swear by the moon and something else. It's elevator music, right? And some of you were also singing like Ace of Bass, I saw the sign. That was 25 years ago. But 25 years was also when the genocide in Rwanda happened in April. 25 years ago was the year that every African that I know stood up with a little bit of air in our chest because Nelson Mandela, who was uh, uh, oppressed and beaten and broken by a country that his people built, was made president through the vote of the people. 25 years ago was also when O.J. Simpson happened. Amazon, who now owns about a quarter of the world, it seems like, they were invented 25 years ago. And you know what, 25 years? It's probably one of the years that Pastor Woody would tell you he was really, really good looking. It was a long time ago. But I want us to hold that this morning. I want us to hold Sarah a little differently this morning because when we realize that the promise is made and it wasn't fulfilled for 25 years, we can understand her a lot better this morning. We can understand her. But here's the other thing I want us to understand about Abraham and Sarah. It's not just Sarah who messes up. It's not just Sarah who struggles. You can even make a good argument that everything Sarah does, she's just following what Abraham did. And it's a reminder to us that, yes, God makes these promises for us, but waiting is hard. And when we take our eyes off of God, we can be led by fear and make some pretty hard decisions that are not good for us or anybody else. But we have to be reminded that 25 years is a long time. So God comes to Abram and Sarai and he says, I will send you a son and it'll be your flesh and blood and nations will come from you and every family in the world will be blessed. Sounds amazing. They're up on the hill. But as soon as that promise comes down, they go down into the valley. They enter into Egypt and Abram goes, you know what, <laughs> Sarah, you're kind of pretty. <laughs> We're in this foreign land. You know, I don't know about these Egyptians. They're going to think you're really, really pretty. So it's not really lying, you know, because we're related. But how about we just tell them you're my sister? Right after the great promise that God's made them, that's his first thing that he does, right? He comes down, he goes to Egypt and says, that's my sister. And this is a hard story for me to teach because you know what? Abram does everything wrong and God still blesses him. Now, the, the, the Hank in me says, this is wonderful. <laughs> There's a freedom there knowing that I can mess up all the time and God still loves me and graces me. But I have a five and three-year-old, so we just skip over this till they get to teenage years and we can talk about it. Amen. Because Abram does everything wrong and the people suffer. And God still comes to, to the Pharaoh and says, no, 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 that woman's not a sister. They're married. And God literally comes to Abram and says, yeah, you messed up. But you know what, though? I'm still going to forgive you, and I'm going to bless you. And he blesses even though Abram falls short. That's Genesis 12. You keep moving on in the story, you, you realize that Abram, after a couple years, we're still into the 25 years, he goes to God and says, I know you made this promise. And, and I have this servant, Eliezer. Eliezer is a good man. He will continue my family line. I chose him. Let me help you out. And God comes to him again and says, no, 
You will have a son from your flesh and blood. That's the promise I made. Eliezer is great, but that's not who I've chosen for you. So then you can understand Hagar a little bit more, can't you? Because not only did, did Abram follow, uh, offer up Eliezer, Sarah tries to help out God too and says, you know what? Here's my maiden Hagar. And God again has to say, no, I mean you, Sarah, and you, Abram, you together, the son will come. And in Genesis 17, God makes a covenant with not just Abram, but Abram and Sarai. That's why their names change. Both their names change. In that ancient culture, when you made deals together, you combined your names. It's almost like our law firms here. You know, when you get a new partner, you tack on a name. Or maybe medical people, you do the same thing. You, add, you tack on a name. Same idea. So Sarai combines with Yahweh and becomes Sarah. And Abram combines with Yahweh and becomes Abraham. And I asked how that's possible in Hebrew class. They said, just forget about it. So we're just going to go with it. But that's what happens. And God makes this promise to both of them again, that from you, Sarah, from your body, a son will come. And you would think that's enough this time, because this is the second time God's appeared to them. But in Genesis 18, God comes back again. And for, for, for probably hundreds of years now, we've been debating on who these people in Genesis 18. And kind of the best way to answer that question is, that who did Abram or Abraham now think that he interacted with in Genesis 18? Who did the people who wrote down this story think Abraham interacted with? And they will tell you it's the Lord God himself. So God himself comes down to Abraham and he says, you know, this time next year, your baby boy will be here. And what's interesting is we remember in this story that Sarah laughs. You know, and she thinks no one hears it. And, but you have to also understand she's 88, 89 years old. She's 88, 88. Like, I think a lot of people just beat her up for this. I'm like, I'm 36 years old. If you tell me I have a baby next year, I might cry. I might not laugh, actually. <laughs> you know, like maybe it's a little bit different. But she's 88, 89 years old. She laughs because it's like this incredulity. Like she's just like, eh, that's hilarious. That's not really happening. But here's what we forget. When God makes that promise to Abram, guess what his first reaction was too? He laughed. And that's when he was probably about 75 years old. You know, he's like, <laughs> that's funny. And God has a sense of humor. He's like, well, you like to laugh. You like to laugh. We'll call the kid laughter. But God makes this promise. He promises him the very next year, a son will come. And you would hope that's the end of the story. Then we get to Genesis 21. But in Genesis 20, they travel again. If I was their travel agent, I'd say I would just stay home till the baby comes. Like, stop going to foreign lands because Abraham loses his mind. He lies. He gets scared. He says that's his sister. Just stay home, you know? So they go to another place. And Abraham now looks at Sarah. And, you know, Sarah must have been one of the most beautiful people ever. You know, he's 89. Or maybe he's just a great husband. I don't know. Great husband, terrible liar or something. But he looks at her again, he goes, yeah, you're a little too beautiful. I think we should tell these people too that you're my sister. This is again after God has come, God in the flesh and says, it's one more year this time. And if you know basics about pregnancy, like a year basically means you got like two to three months and then you know you're pregnant, right? Like it's a year. But within that year, he takes his eyes off God. He goes to this foreign land. He says, this is my sister. 
And, and the king, again, takes Sarah because she's beautiful to be one of his wives. And now God comes to the king in a dream and says, you better not put your finger on her. No, 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 she's married. And the king is like, that's not what her brother said. And God says, just, just it's okay. Um, but here's a cool lesson, I think, from this one that really helps me. Is that not only does God forgive Abraham, there's a bunch of times in the Bible you see this happen. And I think it's a blessing and a relief for us. Not only does God forgive Abraham, You know who God uses as a tool to break the yoke that came upon those people? Because because of Abraham's lie, other people suffer again. So Abraham lies. All the women in that town were barren, were made barren by God. And God looks at Abraham and says, you know what? You're going to go and pray for them. You're going to pray for them. I'm going to lift the curse. And it's a reminder to me that God knows I'm more than the worst thing I've ever done. And to remind it to all of us that God wants to use you. And there's a lot of people who are like, well, I, God forgives me, but I don't forgive myself. And God not only forgives you, but if you're ready and you're willing, God wants to use you. And Abraham tells this lie and people suffer. And God goes back to him and says, I forgive you, but now I want to use you. And I will use you to break this yoke and to set them free. And then you get to Genesis 21. 25 years later, but as the church I grew up in said, but right on time. Right? They waited a long time, but when God was ready, it was right on time. And what I love about this in Genesis 21 is it's almost poetic. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said. The Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Remember, Abraham is 100 years old. They've waited 25 years. They've waited well and they've waited terribly. They've waited patiently and they've waited impatiently. They've trusted God and they haven't trusted God at all. They put their hands in the fate of God. They try to put it in their own hands. But 25 years later, the son of promise comes. God is gracious and God does what he promised all those years ago. And what I love is that not only was God right on time, it's not just something the old church mothers used to say, but if you go back to Genesis 18, you remember that when God himself looked at Abraham and says, I know you've been waiting, but this time next year, a son will come. To remind her to us, no matter what we're waiting for, no matter what we're waiting on, we may not know when the end of that wait will come, but God does, and God does things on his appointed time, amen? And the Lord blesses Abraham and Sarah. And what I love about this is that when God promised them a son, Abraham laughed because he wasn't sure God was serious. When God promised them a son, Sarah laughed because she wasn't sure God was serious. How could he be? And now God blesses them with a new laughter, a laughter of joy. And there's something I missed for years. And there's the very end of this verse passage God says, Sarah herself says, God has brought me laughter. Everyone who hears this will laugh with me. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? I'm not a mother, as you can guess, maybe, hopefully. It's 2019, you never know. You'll think about it later. But one of the greatest blessings of any mother I've ever talked to is the chance to nurse their child. And if you think about Sarah's story, This is something she thought she would never be afforded. From when she was first married to the decades before the promise. 
And now to 25 years after the promise, she's a 90-year-old woman. And we have a God who loves her and cares enough about her personally that he not only gave her the blessing of a child, that not only gave her the blessing of a community that once scorned her, who will now love and share in her joy, he cared enough that she would nurse her baby boy. That's how amazing our God is. He could have just had the promise and be like, well, you're 90, it's on. But God cares enough to that detail. And I love that because when I look at Sarah's story in totality, I'm reminded of these four things that we need to do. The first one is we need to trust God fully, always. God's always going to ask you, do you trust me? Do you trust me now? Do you trust me in this? The work that we have to do is to fully trust him. Second thing that's kind of important from Sarah's story is that we cannot be led by fear. And there's a verse that says, you know, God has not given you a spirit of fear. But I think it's more than even that verse. I think God knows that when we take our eyes off of him, then it becomes stuck on ourselves. And when we get stuck on ourselves, we make our own decisions for us, no matter who it hurts, no matter who it impacts. And it might not be the best choice, but if we keep our eyes on Jesus, life will be hard, but your fears can be conquered because he's overcome the world and now his spirit lives in you. You can conquer it too. But when you're led by fear, you end up in a place you're not supposed to be. And yes, God can redeem. Yes, God can strengthen. But right now, before you get to that point, God wants you to say to your fear, I have faith in God and he will see me through. I think that's something we all need to hold on to because this world and this life wants you to be dominated by your fears. And God wants you to put your fears in his hands. And God wants you to put your future in his hands. And God wants you to put yourself in his hands. Third thing I think Sarah teaches us is that we have to wait on the Lord. Then we have to pray. And then we have to wait some more. One of the things that was interesting as you read through Genesis 12 to 21, there weren't a lot of times where you see like, oh, they're praying. And I pray that for all of us, that's not what they write about our lives. Now, as people who believe in God, I, I can trust that they prayed. Just like I'm trusting that you're praying every single day about every single thing. But more than trusting that you're praying, I want to call you to be a praying people. Because there's something about prayer that reminds us that this world might be out of control, but our God is in control. There's something about prayer that reminds us that it's not about who we are or what we have or what we don't have. It's about our God who has us. And there's something about prayer that allows us to be vulnerable. There's something about prayer that allows us to be honest. There's something about prayer that allows us to have a conversation with God where his spirit can speak into our own hearts. There's something about prayer that grows our faith. So I want us to always be a people, not that we trust that we're praying, but that are actually praying. Because when you're waiting on the Lord... If you're not willing to pray, waiting can become lonesome. Waiting will be too hard. Waiting will be impossible. Because there's a secret about this life. You're not meant to do it on your own. And when you pray, you invite God in. When you pray or ask somebody else to pray, 
You invite them into that situation to uplift you as well and to lift you up in prayer. So when you're waiting on the Lord, it's about building your trust in him. But while you're building your trust in him, pray. Pray some more and then get ready to wait some more. But then the last thing I think we need to hold on to is something that we've learned from Sarah for thousands of years now. And that's simply this. We have a God who fulfills his promises. Amen? We have a God who everything he promised, he fulfills. One of my favorite scriptures is in Corinthians when Paul says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Jesus Christ. And then he concludes by saying, by trusting God, you say amen for his glory. How amazing it is that Jesus our Christ is the fulfillment of every promise that God has made. Who is Jesus? He's the son of David. Who's Jesus? He's the Messiah who was promised, who now sits on the throne forever. Who is Jesus? He's God's treasured possession, God's obedient and only begotten son who gave himself for us. Who is Jesus but the seed of Abraham and Sarah? Who is Jesus but the offspring of Eve who one day grew up and went up to the tree to crush Satan, to crush sin, to crush death, to crush darkness, not only for that day, but forever? Who is Jesus but the one who says, I am making heaven until it's perfect for you, and then I'll come back for you? Who is Jesus but the one who promised us that as we wait on him, he will be with us, not just today, but to the end of the age? Who is Jesus but the one who says, those who believe in my name, they will not perish, but have eternal life? Who is Jesus but the one who says, my followers will have life and they will have life more abundantly. Who is Jesus but the one who gifts you who believe in him, his Holy Spirit to live inside of you. Who is Jesus but the one who has blessed you with this community, but also the body of Christ that is worldwide, that is multinational, that is multigenerational, that is everyone who's ever believed from Abraham and Sarah to 10 generations from now, if we're still here. Who is Jesus but the one who's inaugurated us into this body of faith? Who is Jesus but the one who's coming back for you? if you know him. We're going to close our service this morning. We're going to run a little bit late, but it's a sermon on waiting, so you'll be all right. We're going to close our service this morning by singing a song that might be familiar to a bunch of us. It's Oceans. It's a Hillsong song. But it's a song about trusting God. And this morning, I don't know what you're waiting on the Lord for. I don't know what you're struggling to trust God for. But I know if you're willing to give him just a little morsel of faith, just a little mustard seed of faith and trust, that whenever the oceans rise, whenever the tides come, whenever life comes, that God is going to grow that seed a little bit more and a little bit more. So as we sing this song this morning, may it be a rededication of you to God that I will trust you just a little bit more. I'd like to also invite up the intercessors and pastors. We'd love to pray for you. We'll pray for you for anything you got going on this week, last week, or 10 weeks from now. We'll pray for you. Whatever you're waiting on the Lord for, please let us join you in prayer. But we'll pray for you to remind you that we are members of one another and that what you go through, God is not only there with you, but we want to be with you as well. So please rise as we sing this song. Let it be a rededication of you 
putting your trust in the Lord. Amen.